Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By the end of this podcast, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM Security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. In a world of incessant data tracking, one tech startup is working to create a brand new internet, and that startup is Pied Piper. It's a totally decentralized, totally awesome, and too-good-to-be-true network, only on HBO's Silicon Valley. This tech could make the world a better place. Catch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Please join me in one more round of applause in welcoming Ronan Farrow and Kara Swisher to the Commonwealth Club. Hey, everybody. Hey, everyone. Oh, man, it's totally Hi, Kara. Ronan, you like great, apparently. Um, so I'm going to read this from this script I've got here, So because they, they tape it. And we're also going to put it on the Recode Decode podcast so people who aren't here get to listen to it. And then we're just going to jump in. I got, we got lots to talk about. Kara gives great podcasts. We, you should I all subscribe. I give great podcasts. Um, and, and Pulitzer Prize winning Ronan gives great journalism. So we're going to call him tonight. We're only going to call him Pulitzer Prize winning. <laughs> Maybe. I, I guess I can't say P.P. Ronan. That wouldn't work. <laughs> anyway. Hi, everybody. Welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. And tonight, it is my privilege to be in conversation with Ronan Farrow, investigative journalist and author of the new book, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. So positive. For which he interviewed <laughs> every living secretary of state and some who were didn't seem like they were living, among many others. He's also the newly, that wasn't in here. He's also the newly minted winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for his journalism. Uh, on Harvey Weinstein and the culture of sexual harassment in Hollywood and beyond. Uh, there's so much to discuss, so let's get started. Let's do it. So let's talk about first, I don't know where to start. There's so much to discuss with you. Um, let's start with... Uh, we also go way back, and I still owe Kara because she uh, really went through the hell that was appearing on my midday cable show. Yes, that was an exciting moment. Repeatedly. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I owe her. I don't think I, I was think really every, nice to you. Bo both people who I, saw that program. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I owe them a lot. Yeah. You were nice. I think oh, you were great. I think I said you look like Joffrey on Game of Thrones. <laughs> your problem. Wow. Wow. I, I did I think not I that remember that, but now I think we have the audience beef. at the time. And he was killing a lot of people. He's dead now. So I, on I think that's also probably pretty fair, the yeah. Joffrey comparison. Well, you know, at the time, pale. I was saying at the time, that's what I thought the problem was. But really, it's, it's midday program on cable, really, is the issue. It's tough. Nonetheless, you were, I'm sure you have a huge television career in front of you. Um, going I'm, uh, I'm at HBO. Yes, that's right. Yep. That's right. You're working on that show. We'll talk about that, too. Um, that's not gone up yet, though. You're working on it. No. Uh, yeah. That deal starts in a month or two, and obviously, um, you know, I was on the Today Show for the past few years. Right. Exactly. Yep. So we'll get to NBC and all your television stuff, but let's talk about the books. Let's start with the book, because I do want to get to Harvey Weinstein, because today, I think Ashley Judd said she was suing. Uh, she did. Uh, and we'll talk about that. But let's start about the book, because, first of all, when do you find the time uh, right now? Because you jump from topic to topic, but talk about how this book and how you got into doing this. You worked for the State Department. Yes, I only look like Joffrey. I actually have more work experience yes, than Joffrey. I know. Uh, right. 
You're 30, although I suspect secretly you're 102. But I, both, both probably true. Uh, I am quite old-fashioned and not very cool. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you see the shoes I'm wearing. Yeah, I do. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I went to school really young. I was mm-hmm. a big nerd, and I had this kind of Doogie Howser trajectory where I went to college when I was 11. And, mm-hmm. and so I started working early, mm-hmm. and that was partly journalism. You know, I was doing UNICEF advocacy in Sudan and a number of difficult African conflict zones and uh, trying to tell stories that I felt weren't getting enough attention there. And actually, a lot of that um, aligns very closely with the reporting I ultimately did on sexual assault for The New Yorker because I was telling the stories of survivors of rape as a weapon of war Mm -hmm. in In Sudan. And a lot of that ran in The Wall Street Journal, um, in The Washington Post, uh, The LA Times. But I was just kind of cold submitting these rinky-dink op-eds. You know, Mm -hmm. they were small pieces of commentary. Um, I went off to law school after that Mm -hmm. and was at this inflection point where I was considering whether to go back to, you know, a big corporate evil-ish seeming firm. Mm -hmm. Some of you clearly have been there. So many to choose from, but go ahead. (laughs) Yes, so I mean, it's the only kind they do there. But Richard Holbrook, who I had interned for years before, who was this larger-than-life veteran diplomat, came along and was putting together this kind of Ocean's Eleven heist team of weirdos and outsiders, Mm -hmm. which literally was the phrase that was used to describe it by a very senior military official in this Mm -hmm. book, um, weirdos. Uh, And, you know, he was an incredibly persuasive guy. Mm -hmm. Very difficult, huge ego, but really behind certainly one of the great examples of modern peacemaking in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Henry Kissinger once said, never say no to Richard Holbrook. Mm -hmm. You'll eventually say yes, and it'll be painful getting there. Right. And so I took that to heart, and And I I went off to Afghanistan. Right. So also a fascinating person. He was large enough. I once had a a lunch with him and watched him eat an entire basket of bread, but that's another thing. It was fascinating. No, he was not a delicate eater. (laughs) No, it wasn't. It was everywhere. Um, But uh, I wasn't going to say, because it's not very nice, but he was like, had a lot of things to say. So you went over there. You went over at what age were you at this? I was by then 20. I was, you know, Mm -hmm. no no longer a wunderkind. Uh, Yeah, okay. And as Holbrook liked to point out all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not a kid genius anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we were in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and Washington going back and forth. And one of the trends that I watched unravel on the ground was the shrinking space for diplomacy. Right. And how if you wanted anything done, whether it was uh, getting a well dug or you know starting dialogue with a community on the ground in Afghanistan, you kind of had to do it through the Pentagon, because mm-hmm. that was the only place we had capacity left. Right. So, what, so this was happening well before what's happening now, this, this, the, the ideas. And why? What was the, from your perspective, was the, the declining role of... So there's several answers to that. One is that it's a vicious cycle. Every time we slash away at America's diplomats and what we invest in them... Which has been going on for a long time. Yes, we uh, create a situation where American diplomacy is less useful because it's been hobbled, and that takes years to regenerate. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been doing that. So, you know, I talk about how after the Cold War, the Clinton administration came in and presided over budget cuts to the State Department that are on a similar scale to what we saw under Rex Tillerson Mm -hmm. and the Trump administration. You know, 30% cuts over the course of the 90s. And you talk to Madeleine Albright, as you said, every living secretary of state, former secretary of state is uh, on the record in this book. You know, 
Albright will say, well, that was Jesse Helms's fault. You know, this right. was the fault of a Republican Congress. And then you talk to Republicans who were in Cold congressional Cold. leadership at the time, and they say, well, no, it was the Clinton White House. And the truth is, both are true. Um, you know, both are to blame for how we treated the State Department during that era. But if you look at how uh, Warren Christopher, Clinton's mm -hmm. first Secretary of State, sounded going onto the Hill and saying, here's why we should slash our State Department to ribbons, he sounded a hell of a lot like Rex Tillerson mm -hmm. in a more recent era. Right. You know, the, the commonality is that administration after administration uh, sees this low-hanging fruit of diplomacy and development is just 1% of our budget. Right. But it's easy to talk about dusty bureaucrats not getting anything Bobby done. Bottom. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you want to not take the political risk of saying, hey, maybe we need to rein in the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are already in the thrall of... And we can use the Pentagon as, as effective, presumably, or as, it's effective in whatever we want. It, it's effective, but I think what I chronicle in this book is just how many long-term costs there are that we don't see up front if all we're empowered to do is think tactically. So what mentally happened, because if it hadn't started, because Tillerson sort of synopsized that idea of cutting the State Department, and he, the backlash was massive for him, and we'll get to him mm -hmm. in a second. But what did it start as? What was the impetus for this happening? Well, if you go back to that example during the Clinton administration, mm -hmm. the impetus was, as James Carville put it, it's the economy, stupid. Right. You know, we're refocusing on the domestic. We're not going to spend on these international boondoggles anymore. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of arguments rest on, I think, a really dangerous set of misunderstandings about our diplomats, who are fundamentally brave men and women mm -hmm. who get crappy pay and drag their families around the world to difficult places, often dangerous places, uh, and give up opportunities to have a cushier life in the private sector to serve this country and to make us safer, to uh, screen dangerous people from coming in. They're the first line of defense to um, broker the deals that can keep our brave servicemen and women out of the line of fire. Um, this is really important work, but because of the optics of peacemaking being you know, less easy to understand mm -hmm. than making things go boom, very often on the campaign trail, these are the guys that get right. the shaft. They get shaft. But it's interesting because we have a conception of ourselves as the Secretary of State being the most important, one of the more important roles. And we have this historical number of Secretaries of State who have been so prominent over the course of the entire U.S. history. She says this because she watches Madam Secretary. I do, I do. On I, CBS. And I right now wish Tia Leone was indeed Secretary of State. But I think Tia Leone would make a great Secretary of State. She, she would good, look fierce. She's sensible. Yep. She always solves everything by the end of the program. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she just solved a crisis in the Suzanne yesterday, um, last Congrats, night. Congrats, Tia. Um, it was great. Um, and then she made dinner <laughs> for her handsome husband. Um, and they were adorable. It's a very accurate show. Yeah, yeah. So, but the conceptual idea is this Henry Kissinger, this is an exciting... Um, I just heard a very interesting anecdote. I, I hate to drop a name, but I was at a dinner with Tony Blair, and he told an anecdote... It's, it's like such... I just dropped so many names. 
I just he told for me people I listening to, on the podcast. I, I just to, gave the audience a look like. Okay, uh, all right. But I'm just saying he said it. I don't want to take the responsibility. I didn't say this. He gets credit for it. But apparently, someone went up to Henry Kissinger and said, "I hear you're fascinating. Fascinate me." Um, so you have to fascinate me. Which, that person sounds terrible. I know but it go does, on. but I kind of like it. But but we have that idea of this swaggering Secretary of State yeah. and stuff like that. But it's it's a canard then from your perspective that we don't give it the kind of respect it deserves because we want to do might over. Well, we're we're talking about two different things here. I mean, there are the career foreign service officers, right. um, you know, from whom uh, you often have ambassadors and high level leadership mm-hmm. positions filled, um, but who are separate from the political appointees who come in, right. which is you know mostly what we're talking about when we say a secretary of state. Right. Uh, I think that the denigration of those career officers is a real problem Mm -hmm. and is one of the things underpinning this repeated slashing away at the State Department. Did you ever want to join, uh, become a diplomat? I I was in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Really? Yeah. I wanted to be a spy, though, so that's different. You'd be good at both, to be honest. I might be one right now, and it's the best cover. Well, (laughs) I may also be one, Tara. (laughs) But technically, they are not supposed to have journalist cover stories. Supposedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Supposedly, allegedly. Uh, You would be like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but without all the sex. But go ahead. Um, (laughs) Kara, first of all, the night is young. Okay. All right. (laughs) It's not happening, Ronan. I just, you know, she's always rebuffing me. I am, constantly. So, so, you know, I'm interested, actually, in your answer to this question, because... Even when you were in school looking at this yeah. decision, I, I think that the prestige of the profession was already into. In de- no. It was better than it is now, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But you clearly decided not to go that route. Uh, Why? Because I was gay and there was a, the, 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 the process was terrible That's a good at the time. At the time, yeah. I'm super old, but it was really bad yeah. at the time. And I remember the interview was terrible. It was mm. all about being out. And I'm like, I am out, but if you were out, if you went to Saudi Arabia, I don't, it was ridiculous. It was an insane thing. I would have well, done it. Well, I'm glad you raised that, actually, because right now, obviously, one of the points of contention during Pompeo's confirmation mm-hmm. process was his views on this issue. And, um, in the soup of fears uh, evoked by his hawkishness and mm-hmm. his willingness to stand lockstep with the president on the rolling back of major diplomatic accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also, I think, for many foreign service officers, including openly gay ones who talk in this book, uh, a, a lot of fear about this right, particular strain of conservatism coming into right, a, a, a now very liberal department. Yeah, absolutely. Greatest hits. Um, so talk about this idea of, of if you have all these different things around the world that are challenges right now. Um, let's let this lead up to it. You, one of the things you talked about was the last sort of very prominent Secretary of State was Hillary Clinton. How do you assess her because Trump attacks it a lot of the time, a lot of the deals they made during the time. How do you assess that tenure? So here's the interesting... Because she did a great job, for example, during that time. And, and I reported back. to her for several years while she was in that job. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the interesting and complicated thing about the story of the Obama administration when it comes to diplomacy. So mm-hmm. people think of Obama standing there in Cairo and talking about peace and the importance of not just relying on military solutions, which he, he used that kind of language a lot. But in fact, uh, there are a lot more pros and cons when you look at Obama's diplomatic legacy. In this book, War on Peace, you have people like Ben Rhodes speaking Mm -hmm. very frankly about the fact that for much of the first term, for many of the major policy reviews, they were somewhat snowed by a culture of celebrity generals, which is Mm -hmm. a phrase that Ben uses when he talks about this. And 
Richard Holbrook's story ends with him fighting for peace negotiations in Afghanistan for some kind of a political settlement and being rebuffed partly because there really wasn't any room for points of views that weren't lockstep with the military's view. And so that's the the kind of the con, that Mm -hmm. when I was there for the first term, um, you know, and that's when Hillary Clinton was there, obviously, there was a very, very hawkish, militarized climate in a number of different policy processes. There was a consolidation of power at the White House to the exclusion of the empowerment of diplomats, and I talk about how that echoed around the world, and people like Samantha Power are, again, frank about saying kind of mea culpa on that. But I I will say, in the second term of the Obama administration, which I was not present for and and Secretary Clinton was not present for, an interesting thing happened, which is, by the admission of a lot of these officials, they course-corrected. And they spent a few years really investing in large-scale diplomatic endeavors. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that second term, in just a few short years, you had the Iran deal, as controversial as it is, certainly a serious mm-hmm. diplomatic undertaking. You had the Thon relations with Cuba. Mm-hmm. You had the Paris Climate Change Accord, right. all in rapid succession. So I think the Obama administration um, gives us both lessons, how dangerous the militarization of foreign policy is, and also how quickly you can pull out of the nosedive if you choose to. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provides access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and to reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Silicon Valley is back for another season and another pivot. This time, founder Richard Hendricks turns his sights on launching a decentralized internet. With so much focus on data tracking and privacy on the web, this latest turn of events feels eerily relevant. But this should come as no surprise. The comedy has made a name for itself with two real jokes about startup culture. It's the show's attention to detail that feeds the comedy. Every reference is on point, not to mention the fantastic Emmy award-winning cameos from people like me. I'm still waiting for that Emmy, but I really enjoyed being on it, including giving Gavin Belson advice on how to run Hooli. Get new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. So let's talk about today, because a lot of people feel, you know, your piece and then your, your, the section of this book about mm-hmm. Rex Tursen was the decimation may now be so damaging that it's not recoverable, although I suspect it probably is recoverable. But it, it, the, the, the concept of this particular Secretary of State and what happened here in a very short period of time. So we'll talk about that. And then I want to go through a couple areas and, and switch over to... So our- to be clear... I'm not uh, drawing an equivalence between what happened under Obama or George W. Bush and what's it's happening more now. more a militarization of diplomacy. Well, well I think it's a, it's a difference of degrees. What is happening now is an unprecedented new extreme. Uh, 
there are lessons to be drawn from history where we have tried this before. We've mm -hmm. seen a little bit of this movie before, but this is a, this is a much bigger production of it. Um, we are laying waste to the State Department. Within days of the Trump administration assuming power, there were these just mass purges of our career officials. And yes, to an extent, you know, political appointees come and go and they leave when new people come in, but right. this is different. These were you know, people who had been there for decades right. uh, with expertise in some of the most important challenges we face in the world, just unceremoniously being given the boot. Um, positions that uh, have not been completely wiped out, uh, as in they no longer exist, uh, are left unfilled. There are embassies without ambassadors everywhere. There are uh, regional offices across the State Department without assistant secretaries of state. Everyone is an acting official. It's chaos. And is this by plan or by not plan? I think that it is by plan without uh, a care in the world for the consequences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a White House that it appears simply does not want to deal with or engage with our diplomats or the idea of diplomacy. Or use them. Or use them. I mean, Rex Tillerson was a great crystallization of just how bad it can get in terms of a secretary of state who firewalled himself from all of the experts in the building, um, who presided over these incredibly deep budget cuts, uh, who really was seen as the willing executioner of the State Department. And he's more candid on the record in this book, in yeah, one of his yeah. last interviews, than I've ever seen him well, be. Well, could give a fuck at that point, right? I, I, think, I think that he was it's starting... like I ran Exxon and now this... He was right. He just ruined Twitter. his legacy. So, right. he, so perhaps he was approaching the point of giving zero fucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he says, you know, that he was too inexperienced to know really how to do budget advocacy on the Hill. Uh, he says that he fought the White House tooth and nail and lost those fights to fill a lot of these empty positions. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of passing the buck, but you know, uh, like so many of these giant characters in War on Peace. He is complicated. You know, mm -hmm. he's not all good or all bad. I, he had a tremendous legacy of private sector leadership. That mm -hmm. doesn't happen by accident. Clearly, right. he's a smart guy with a, a good degree of skill in this um, who just wound up deeply at sea. Mm -hmm. I did like your part where the whole staff is arguing with each other in front of you, which yeah. was like fantastic. Yeah, it, it was really acrimonious. Among by and the between end. them. A, 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 a lot group. of infighting. It was like, uh, I mean, you know, Red Redding was about it. to happen. Yeah, they just weren't even hiding there. Yeah. Like, it's like an yeah. Italian family going to town or something like that. My family, <laughs> yeah. like arguing in front of guests, um, which was interesting. Um, so, what does that leave with, since given there's so much going on, like, uh, Africa, for example, the Chinese making inroads in Africa, mm -hmm. or the Iran deal, mm -hmm. or the Paris Accord. They're just so not... a lot of questions in one. So, yeah, so uh, let me like do this in reverse. I, yeah. I think, because that's the the Because we're going to end on North question. Korea, but go ahead. Great. Um, and North Korea's addressed... Lo love ending on North Korea. Look, we, we may all end with or as a <laughs> consequence of North Korea, um, if we're not careful. Uh, so when you ask about sort of these diplomatic accomplishments like yeah. the, the Paris Accord, um, they are an endangered species right now. Mm -hmm. And the Trump administration has very deliberately set about trying to dismantle all of these accomplishments. And it seems pretty clear from the rhetoric that's used um, that this is uh, less... Isolationist. A, it's a, yeah, it's, it's less a substantive concern and, and more about just wanting to tear down Obama administration mm -hmm. accomplishments. 
which is incredibly short-sighted, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, these are deals that brought us closer to our allies internationally, where we've made major commitments that uh, if we go back on them, mm -hmm. it will raise serious questions about the United States as an actor of good faith in the international right. arena. Um, and, you know, in each of these cases, I think the rollback has already proved to be destructive for our standing in the conflict in question. Uh, you asked about Africa. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things. One is there's a chunk of this book where I look at, okay, the trend you've just heard about, but how does that echo around the world? And Africa is one of the examples. Um, I was in the Horn of Africa at a time when we were propping up the Ethiopians as they invaded Somalia. And I, I give this whole complicated story um, where we're backing different uh, factions as they fight each other on the ground. And the, the interesting and instructive thing about this is we did that because we kicked the diplomats out. Mm -hmm. We did that because opportunities for regional peace agreements and peacekeeping right. forces presented themselves, and we thought it would interfere with what the Pentagon and the CIA were doing, right. which was backing these regional warlords. Mm -hmm. And so we actively sabotaged chances at diplomacy. Right. And you know, I tell that story in several different parts of the world, but that's one of them. Um, so that's you know, part of the Africa question. And then you mentioned China. Mm -hmm. China is the shadow that looms over this whole narrative. Mm -hmm. Because whether it's in Africa or um, Afghanistan and Pakistan or- Technology. Pick a place, right, technology. Um, you know, all of these uh, places where China now has massive, massive infrastructure projects. Uh, we see a stark difference in the trend line. I mean, I, I'm careful not to overstate the case here. The United States still has the upper hand in a whole lot of ways. Um, it will take time for China to truly erode our foothold. However, it is striking to notice that in so many places where China was until recently a kind of rapacious interloper that didn't care about human rights and you know, was just commercially minded, now they've got regional envoys doing shuttle diplomacy in places like Sudan, trying to get big, splashy political settlements um, exactly in the arena where we've stepped back, and I think partly because we've stepped back. They are doubling down on their spending on their embassies and their development projects, and I personally have talked to young people around the world who grow up with these spectacular examples of Chinese investment in their country. Versus U.S. investment, which had been for... Which has now come to embassies without ambassadors in many of these places. Right. So talk about um, our relations, right? right? We just had Macron here... Angela Merkel came and ran as fast as she could back to Germany, it looked like. Uh, after a few sassy looks. Yes, it doesn't work. It didn't work for her. Um, but Macron, and Macron did, you know, uh, whatever he was doing with Trump. It was, it's like Kaja full three. D dug a grave, I think. I don't know. I'm not sure what was happening. I have to say it was the happiest Trump has looked in a long time. Um, well, uh, he, he loves uh, not that there's anything putting that. people down. No, we, right. lo we love for not, the president to be happy. Yeah, but he, he loves the, the move of like, you know, oh, there's a fake speck of dandruff. Let me take it off. You all yeah. caught that moment. Um, right. Yeah, I saw that. I guess that's a kind of diplomacy. Yeah. So what, what, how were we looked at around the world? And especially with the, Ru you know, the Russians so aggressively intruding themselves in our national affairs. So... The question of what this has done, this right. war on peace has done to our 
uh, relationship with our allies is a really important one. And the answer is, you'll be not at all shocked to hear, very troubling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Angela Merkel is one of the many international leaders who has sort of repeatedly had to say, frankly, extraordinary and unprecedented things about the United States right. because we are no longer viewed as a trustworthy actor. Right. Um, you know, this happens in all sorts of situations. She's been very frank in her alarm about our posture towards North Korea, for instance. Um, uh, you know, certainly that's true of Macron, too. You know, you see him in this most recent trip saying, yeah, sure, maybe another Iran deal, basically as a Hail Mary pass to try to not have this administration blow up an agreement that will, A, if we pull out unilaterally and sabotage the thing, drive a wedge between the United States and all of its European allies, Mm -hmm. B, send a devastating message to the North Koreans at a time where we desperately need them to believe that if we strike a deal, we will stick to it. Right. Um, And C, potentially uh, reinstate a rising nuclear threat that we had at least temporarily contained, contained for the sake for of the whole world. period of time, for the yeah. period of time we did. Yeah. So, North Korea. They're meeting this week. It was like a, another, another bunch of photo ops. So, I'm expecting him to appear on the cover of Vanity Fair at any moment. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it could go either way. What do you, it could what go do you, either way, and I think that's the point. Obviously, we all hope sincerely that this moonshot of you know Kim Jong Un meeting with President Trump uh, will be productive. Right. However, time will tell whether that's actually the case. And I tell the story because of because the, they've done that; they have come this close before. We've seen this movie before, and we've heard these exact promises before, and they have turned out to be lies. We have gotten played before. I tell the story in this book of the decades of. Uh, diplomacy around North Korea and the reasons why it failed and also the reasons why it didn't completely fail. And we might have been better served not to walk away from that diplomatic progress Mm -hmm. and why the situation we're in now is partly a consequence of the periods in which we did walk away, like during the Obama administration. How do you assess uh, Trump's strategy here? I mean, it's basically, I'm going to be crazier than that guy and then see what he does. It seems like, I mean, he said it. It's like, I was... You know, there's actually... Nothing wrong with that as part of a toolkit of diplomatic options. Right. I think if you have a controlled craziness right. and you can deploy that at will, that could be really powerful. Yeah. But it's got to be embedded in a set of expertise and uh, individuals who know the pressure points and the history and the ways in which they lie again and again right. um, and the concessions that you should take and the ones that you should not. Is, uh, the crazy part seems to be working, but the, but the second part, the, the, I know a lot of the people on those desks are gone. Like the, gone. And gone. You, you can really just directly contrast what the staff around this looks like now versus what it looked like during the Bush administration, where under Condoleezza Rice, there were these six-party talks. Mm-hmm. And I tell the story of the diplomat who led those. Um, you know, this really tireless endeavor where, you know, although it fell through in the end, we got them to shut down one of the reactors for the first time in years. We made huge inroads in our relationship with China around this. And any long-term solution to contain North Korea is going to involve China. Right, right absolutely. Um, you know, they're the only players yep. who have leverage there. Uh, we made progress, and then we walked away from it. And right now, we are not going back to leverage those gains. We are throwing it all out of the window. He is doing diplomacy by tweet. Um, there's going to be this one-on-one meeting. As you say, the experts who once steered this process 
during that Bush era, there was a huge unit of North Korea experts right. who really knew the region. That's no longer the case. And well, he's you know, saying it did. They didn't get it work anyway. So what's the difference if I do it this way? That's yeah, it, exactly. And I think that that is an ahistorical view. And I think if you if you look at what those experts and diplomats accomplished, it is not inconsiderable. And the people who know where we screwed up before, and who know how we affected the modest gains before are the, the guys you want to be listening to right now, right. where we desperately need those views to embed this moonshot of a leader-to-leader -leader so meeting in a long-term strategy. It's just Pompeo and who? You know, it, it is very difficult to see how this administration can turn this around, given realistically what the president seems to think of diplomacy um, and how little he seems to care about empowering America's diplomats. Mm -hmm. Mike Pompeo is a more experienced government operator than Rex Tillerson was. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as people are fearful about what he might bring to the table, uh, the career officers that I'm talking to who were brave enough to you know, turn whistleblower for this book um, are hopeful as well. They hope mm -hmm. that he'll be able to stand up to the president more mm -hmm. and that when the president says, actually, this guy is much more on my wavelength than Rex Tillerson, actually, that's maybe Pompeo knowing how to play the president better. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a White House official who uh, describes Mattis's approach to the president in this book and says, uh, I believe the quote is sort of doing Mattis's voice, whatever that sounds like. Like, mm -hmm. yes, Mr. President, you're so perfect, Mr. President. You won so much, Mr. President. Um, you know, but here's an alternative view, Mr. President. Uh, and, you know, that White House source gave that anecdote in the context of saying Rex Tillerson never got the hang of that. Right. So maybe, just maybe, Obsequious Mike Pompeo... Obsequious ass-kissing to get what you want. Sure. And maybe, maybe Mike Pompeo knows how to play that game better and will therefore be able to actually advocate for the State Department. What would Department. be a win it needs in leadership. North Korea? And then I want to move on to your... What would be a win? Yeah. I think that uh, any concession in terms of their nuclear ambitions is at this point a win. And any actual verifiable, um, inspectable gains in terms of dismantling their nuclear capacity is a win. But again, much more so than Iran, this is a regime that has cheated in the past when yes. we've struck these deals right. and given incomplete or inaccurate data. Uh, I even described an incident where they turned over that incomplete data on pages that were um, tainted with enriched uranium. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the, the pages that were supposed to say that they didn't have the enriched yeah. uranium. Oh, they're funny, those. <laughs> they're, they're, they got a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all of which is to say you need experts keeping an eye. Yeah, you need experts keeping an eye on this. they preside over a vicious series of internment camps and all over. Of course. Well, so I'm glad you raised that because one of the things that falls by the wayside, I think, as a consequence of this trend of the militarization of mm -hmm. American foreign policy is human rights. It's one of the first things that goes out of the window when you're dealing with warlords in a really expedient way and strong mm -hmm. men in a really expedient way and all of the relations are general to general and mm -hmm. spy to spy. Um, that said, I think one of the misunderstandings about diplomacy that gets exploited and weaponized against the State Department is this idea that these deals can be perfect, mm -hmm. that diplomacy can look complete. Realistically, what happens is what you got in Bosnia, which was a difficult and imperfect agreement that gave too much power to the aggressors and maintained a lot of the factionalism and ethnic strife. Um, lots of reasons to critique that deal. But also, it stopped years of bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And 
likewise, the Iran deal faces these, you know, not incorrect criticisms based around the fact that it's not complete. It doesn't address Iran's human rights track record and its kidnappings and its non-nuclear ballistic missile tests, um, but it wasn't designed to. It was designed to just contain, in a limited way, this one narrow band of behavior around nuclear progression, and it did that effectively. And there was no perfect deal that could have been an alternative. This was the best that we had, because we got to it too late and too many centrifuges were already going. And likewise, I think any deal with North Korea, if we really want to invest in a diplomatic solution, is going to look imperfect. And there are going to be the human rights problems, and we are going to have to get to them later. And correctly, that's going to make people angry. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and your assessment of the leader of North Korea? Uh, they make for quite a pair, and I'll leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. We know that uh, people are using mobile to research and transact more than ever before, which we've talked about. Um, What's the future of mobile commerce and how does MParticle help its uh, retailer customers like Overstock, Lily Pulitzer, and Jet.com? So the classic notion of a person moving through the funnel is fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. People may start researching a company's product on their laptop, subscribe to that brand's email newsletter a few days later, get an email which they open on their phone, download the app and complete the purchase. You know, so right there, just trying to map the customer journey, you need to capture data from four or five systems. So brands need to create uh, consistent and personalized experiences across all these devices and systems. And so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, Mm -hmm. create a unified view of the customer, and then in real time, sync that data out to all the various marketing and analytics tools that the company may use in order to create these experiences. So people are doing very different things all the time. Absolutely. Dynamic as they are using all these devices. For sure. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, it's Ed Lee this week taking over Peter's show. He likes it when I do that. I talked to Amy Chozik, the author of a new book called Chasing Hillary, which is about exactly that, chasing Hillary Clinton across two of her presidential campaigns, and more particularly the most recent one uh, against Trump, which was really divisive. And, you know, her book talks about what it's like to be on the campaign bus, what it's like to deal with all our handlers, what to do with stolen emails, uh, and the difficulties of debating what's news and what's not news and what it's even like to work inside the New York Times. And it was a great discussion. You should go check it out. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, congratulations on your Pulitzer. Thank you. Um, Well-deserved. Thank you to all of you for caring about this issue. Thank you to all of the sources. These women yeah. did an yeah. incredibly so brave thing. They how, went through hell to do how it. Did you, this has been a story a lot of people. I know David, David Carr very well before uh, he died, but he talked to me about this story quite a bit. I've heard so many people talking about this story over the years and Harvey Weinstein's behavior. And you, uh, you, you probably saw in one of those stories that I wrote, I mm-hmm. uncovered the way in which David Carr was being intimidated yep. and surveilled yep, and absolutely. the way in which Harvey Weinstein really felt he had effectively intimidated him. 
Which and the was trip, very he sad. just couldn't get people to talk. One of his issues, he just couldn't get. And having sure. been, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff here in Silicon Valley, the same thing, getting people to talk was really the key to a lot of it. Um, and we've written a lot of issue, issues of this issue. We covered the POW trial. We wrote a lot about Uber's problems. Mm -hmm. um, but the actual getting, uh, unlocking people's abilities. So let's talk about that. How did, how did you manage to do that? And one of the things I want to make the observation, I've made it publicly before, is that it's also being able to see things in a different way from the victim's mentality and to be more empathetic. And I know that it's sort of a broader term, but I don't think it was a coincidence that these stories were broken by um, by women and a gay man. Like it just, it has, you have more, you have an ability to see an, an empathetic thing and allow people to understand people's problems. And maybe you don't agree with me. It's, I, I it's think my argument for diversity. It's a, it's a fascinating point. I mean, I think that anyone who has felt um, othered or right. unseen or unheard mm -hmm. probably has an elevated understanding of what survivors of sexual assault go through and the right. extent to which they frequently feel invisible in our culture. Right. Um, you know, and that flowed from a number of part of my identity, in, including my sister being mm -hmm. a survivor of sexual assault. Right. Um, you know, I had had people who were very dear to me confront this issue head on mm -hmm. and had learned just how high the stakes are and how devastating the fallout is. Right. And, and a lot of reporters say don't don't do something that's that close to you, but I think that's exactly the people to do that. Well, I, I, I think that every reporter I respect draws a distinction. You know, you don't do something that's close to you in the sense that, you know, you have a personal relationship with mm -hmm. the people directly right, involved. Right, of course. And I, and I didn't. I have, you know, a perfectly lovely, superficial cocktail party relationship with Harvey Weinstein um, mm -hmm. and no, you know, business relations Not with him today, though, right? No. <laughs> no, that is past <laughs> tense. Right, okay. I don't think he's awkward. at a lot of cocktail parties now. Um, no. Although maybe in Arizona, whatever yeah. sex rehab he's had. Um, I, uh, you know, had no adverse feelings about him, but I did care passionately about the issue and right. feel close to it in the sense that I you had some understanding important. of it. Right, and, right. and I think, you know, every reporter that I respect, um, you know, agrees that that kind of drive is... It creates a better Is, is only a good thing. You know, right. we all, you report on tech and you're mm -hmm. close to that world and it, mm -hmm. it makes you a better reporter in that right. world. And, um, you know, any matter that you uh, feel a close affinity to and care about... I think you use that in whatever your profession is. So how did you get these women to talk to you? Because I think that was the key part. That, to me, was uh, astonishing. And, and, and the New York Times did also. But the interviews you did were particularly gripping. And, and um, they really were. They, you re they, they ripped your heart out, the stories of Annabella Shore and all the others. Um, how did you go about that? How did you... Because you had done it for... And there's a lot of controversy about NBC not backing you, essentially. Mm -hmm. Are those reports correct that you were working on it, they didn't feel you, ha they say they didn't feel you had it, I've heard that from them, and I said I don't believe you in any way. Um, so I, I don't believe what they said there. Um, you felt like you, that you didn't have support there, so you moved it over to The New Yorker. Uh, I would say, yes, it is publicly known and everyone involved has admitted that uh, the bulk of the year of reporting on this story happened at NBC and was intended right. to be for my Today Show investigative series where right. I was already doing these kinds of sort of truth to power, large scale right. investigations, you know, deaths being covered up at a government nuclear plant mm -hmm. um, or, you know, miscarriages of justice in campus sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the Title IX issues around that, you know, right. contentious issues that sometimes right. touched on this, this very right. matter. Um, right. So yes, it was intended to be for that. So, and you, did you have trouble getting them on camera to talk or was there issues around that? No, the very first interview was an on the record, on camera interview. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with a prominent person accusing Harvey Weinstein of rape. Mm -hmm. So from, from the very beginning, uh, you know, this was clearly a high stakes story. Right. And uh, ve very rapidly, the body of evidence expanded to an extraordinary extent. Uh, you know, that interview would have been January of last year. Mm -hmm. uh, by April of last year, I had and had played for my entire, you know, editorial and corporate chain of command this extraordinary audio of Harvey Weinstein admitting to a sexual right. assault, right. which was made during the course of a police sting operation and right. had been buried for various reasons, some but not all of which uh, have been made public. Um, and I uncovered that, and you know there was a growing group of women saying, this is a safety issue, that this is mm -hmm. a pattern, and I wish I had been warned, and maybe you can help warn the next woman. Right. So, it became impossible for me to stop at that point. Mm -hmm. And so what caused you to move it? Like they just wouldn't... I, I think that, you know, I get this question all the time, obviously, right. and people are correct to ask. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the fact that there was a veil of silence around the Harvey Weinstein story for decades is not accidental, and right. there were a variety of Pressures. systems right. that kept it Which you wrote silent. about, which you also wrote about. Many of which I wrote about. And, you know, the question of the complicity of the media mm -hmm. and the role the media played in keeping this quiet for as long as it was quiet um, are important ones. Mm -hmm. And I think there will be more to say about that as time goes on mm -hmm. and various investigations into this unfold. Um, you know, I just want to make sure that I tell uh, the story that I witnessed and uh, reveal the evidence that I have in a careful way. And that it's also timed in a way that doesn't take away from the spotlight that is correctly placed on the women and on their the, allegations. Right, at the, at the time you're doing them. So Correct. You, so I, I've wanted to, you know, no reporter wants to become the story. Right. And when there is, you know, a considerable story behind the story, um, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that that doesn't come out at a time where it would eclipse the very hard-fought stories of these accusers. Right. We'll get to the idea of him trying to shut you down in a, in a second, but what, when you started putting this together, finally for David, who's an astonishing editor... Astonishing. At, at, David Remnick astonishing. is one of the best forces we have he's in journalism. Yeah, he, yeah. He's a he's a real uh, hero. You know, yeah. He really champions the tough stories and is immensely principled. Right, absolutely. Why did you go there? What was your... What, what you thought that was a place you could get the entire thing? Ken Oletta, mm -hmm. who is a wonderful New Yorker Media writer, writer New yes, York. had uh, attempted to break this story for the Many New Yorker. He did. He just talked about it with several him. times, as early as the early aughts, you know, two thousand one, mm -hmm. two thousand two, and. I became aware that he had dug into this and had a number of accusers who had spoken to him and was struggling to get people on the record. And one of the most moving things about this story, in addition to the tremendous sacrifice and bravery of the women, was also just how generous fellow reporters were. Yeah, he I mean, told me to an extent, thing. David Carr from the grave, essentially, because his widow was wonderful in helping me put together the puzzle pieces of his story, and his co-workers were generous in the same way. Yeah. Um, Canaletta 
literally gave his notes from that time to me. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I I went into a dusty archive in the New York Public Library and Mm -hmm. sifted through all of these meticulous reporters' notebooks and, you know, found these contemporaneous accounts of conversations that backed up the things that I had been chasing and the sources Mm -hmm. that I had been talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was immensely helpful at a time where I was very much being gaslit and told this wasn't a story and was Mm -hmm. running into all sorts of obstacles um, in my career and in my life. that were being arrayed around me because I wasn't stopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lifeline to have fellow reporters say, no, there's something here, keep right. going. And Ken was one of those people. What do you think the breakthrough moment of that was for you? What was the second where you're like, aha, now I have him? I think anytime you hear a literal recording of yeah, someone I of that, that stature was... admitting yeah. to it, it's, right. you yeah. Know, pretty uh, cut and dry, although uh, obviously uh, that didn't stop many people from trying to squash it even yes, after that point. And also squash her, like try to ruin her. Yes, yes. There, there were whole systems arrayed uh, against not only me and reporters working on this, but also, of course, against the, the women, including Amber Badalana Gutierrez, mm-hmm. who was the woman in that tape, who um, is an incredibly savvy uh and strong person Mm -hmm. and did a really brave thing that she didn't have to do um, with no prospect of gain. You know, Mm -hmm. the argument that was constantly weaponized against her was that she was some kind of a hustler and she was in it to turn a buck. And um, all I can say is she did not have to go back to Harvey Weinstein wearing a wire, Mm -hmm. terrified. Uh, And there there was no deal for her at the other end of that. There was nothing she got out of that except maybe preventing another woman from getting in the same situation. Right. Um, and she did a number of really brave things in the course of this reporting and yeah. was smeared terribly throughout. And, and the other women, when they started to speak on their record, why now do you think they, they did decide to do it? Because again, I remember with David and Ken, they wouldn't do it. What do you think changed? I think that the world changed, Kara. There was a progression of brave women and and also now, of course, eventually men. And I I don't want to discount the importance of male survivors of sexual violence and how much we need to hear their voices. But at the time, it was mostly women coming forward um, and chipping away at the culture of silence. Mm -hmm. And that was true of Cosby's accusers, Mm -hmm. who spoke out at a time where it's easy for us to forget now as this you know, court verdict against him is hailed as a a victory for human rights. When they first spoke out, and I was having these fights in newsrooms wanting to cover that, Mm -hmm. they were terribly smeared. It was a 50-50 split between uh, serious coverage of their stories and op-eds saying, but wait, look at his cultural contribution. You know, look at what he did for race, look at what he did for comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of men, it really was a gendered reaction, you know, writing these spirited defenses of him and Mm -hmm. and assisting in the takedowns of these women. And, uh, you know, I I remember and have written about uh, fights that I had where, for instance, I would have on my cable news program uh, Cosby's official biographer, Mark Whitaker, who Mm -hmm. didn't mention the allegations in yep. the biography. And I just knew about them through the grapevine and had right. read about you know, the, the various aborted legal processes right. and wanted to ask a question. Mm-hmm. You know, why didn't you include that? Is it ethical for you to exclude that? Right. And I got terrible pushback. You know? And not all of it from a conscious place of 
evil or even cowardice. Just people right. saying, well, that's not the way we do this in polite company. Why would you ask about that? Right. That's not in the headlines. Right, right. It is interesting because it happens all, that happens all the time. I all remember time. Uh, Gabriel Sherman, who did a great job on Ailes later, yep. I remember sitting with him. I go, why was this not? None of this was in your book. And he, ta- he had, you know, he's like, the women wouldn't talk. I couldn't get them. I tried. I said, did you try real hard? Did you try real hard? I go, not hard enough. You know, we had a really great discussion about it, and at least he was willing to talk about it. And similarly, I had a Commonwealth Club with Aunt Adam Lashinsky, and he wrote an entire book about Uber without discussing the sexism mm. and the sexual harassment and everything else there. And I was like, how was that? How I hope that- there's a lesson for every journalist tackling a story where there's a little voice saying, hey, there's this other thing, and it's right. maybe impolite to raise it. Right. But it might look really bad if you don't. In retrospect. And I I do hope that that's a cautionary tale for people. And I I think in this case, it was the women who, uh, you know, penetrated that veil of silence, um, you know, against all odds and broke through with the odd story here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the Cosby accusers. It's my sister. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Gretchen Carlson talking about the situation at Fox. Those were precedents that I was able to point to when I had these conversations with women over months and months and months as they turned over, okay, if I relive the worst trauma of a lifetime and put my trust in you as a reporter and take this risk that I will be wiped out career-wise and maybe threatened in terms of my physical safety, what happens at the end? Am I ever heard? And Citing those precedents, I was able to give them a glimmer of hope. You know, not a not a great glimmer, but mm-hmm. something. You know, some shred of hope that they would be heard eventually. What was your convincing argument to them? Well, so it was telling them that the world had changed mm-hmm. and that speaking out about this after those other precedents was going to be different. That we were in the midst of a sea change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, couldn't have anticipated how much that was true. Right, yeah. But I sensed that that was happening, and I was able to point to the beginnings of it. Um, And then, you know, it it was about altruism. Every single woman who went on the record about Harvey Weinstein did it because they wanted to help the next woman. Right. And they wanted to help the culture. And they did it, I guarantee you, looking at much more downside than upside. Right. And it was still important enough to them that they help. And not everyone made that decision. You know, there, there were women that I was talking to for months and months who ultimately decided they weren't going to help. It looks like there were some that were and then later, later shifted. Uh, every variation of that. Yeah. There were women who never decided to, to go on the record. Um, there were women who, you know, were, did a gradual progression of going on background as an anonymous source and then going fully on the record. There were women who were out and then in and then back out and then back in. Mm-hmm. And that too is part of reporting on these stories. Right. You know, th- this is a, a reporting process that forces people to relive the worst trauma they ever knew. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a rough ride. And, you know, I'm, I'm still dealing with sources going through hell Right. trying to tell stories that haven't about, yet broken. I want to get to the questions from people in a second, but talk about people, what the repercussions now are. What do you imagine? Where are we now? Are, are we in this post-Me Too era? Or are we still in the... Like, you don't have to like, place us, but you, do, what, is, what do you imagine is happening now? Because you've seen this come out um, in orchestras, in art, in architecture, in uh, tech, in every, everywhere, pretty much. It's a lot in media, a whole lot in media. 
in Hollywood. I think one reason why I structured those stories and you know the incredible team at The New Yorker structured those stories with me um, around systems rather than individuals is because the systems still have a long way to go. Right. And you know this, in my mind, was never a story about Harvey Weinstein or a story about the entertainment industry. This was a story about the abuse of power and the way in which the most powerful people in this country can manipulate the press, mm-hmm. manipulate the legal. judicial and legal process, um, you know, in Harvey Weinstein's case, directly influence a DA's office mm-hmm. um, in a really breathtaking way, uh, you know, smear people, uh, intimidate people. I mean, for crying out loud, hire combat-ready former Mossad agents to assume right. false identities right. and makes follow them think people. Crazy, right? It makes someone think they're gas yeah, them yeah, and insinuate themselves into people's lives and go after women and go after reporters. I mean, these are systems that are still being used every day. I mean, I, I am. You've written about AMI, uh, the president's David Pecker, and and those still in place with with Linda, with McDougal and and. Um, Stormy Daniels. Yes. So, so that's, that's a great example of the through line here where, where these are common systems employed by multiple powerful people seeking to silence opposition. Um, you know, what Kara's referring to is I, I've broken a number of stories in the last few months about secret election season payments uh, to cover up stories on behalf of the president. And uh, those were undertaken through an intermediary that Harvey Weinstein also used, American Media Inc., uh, the parent company of the National Enquirer. Mm-hmm. And you know, I talk about how uh, that company and a number of others were used by you know, this echelon of wealthy and influential person to smear uh, people that they wanted to take off the map and to- Pay off of. Uh, yeah, and to undertake secret payments to keep stories out of the media. And, and in the case of Trump, out of the political narrative in the crucial window before Americans went to the polls. Right. And do you, where does this end now? I mean, obviously, there's a state, Michael Cohen's been, they're investigating that. It's going to slow roll, presumably, for a little bit. Well, we know that uh, the Southern District of New York, uh, mm-hmm. when they undertook the search warrants of uh, various premises owned by Michael Cohen, uh, you know, one of the express aims, the Times has reported, was to go after communications between Michael Cohen and AMI and the National Enquirer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of other proceedings ongoing that are looking at these systems with respect to both the president and with respect to Harvey Weinstein. Um, I think there will be a lot more unfolding in terms of the justice system and how it confronts these issues finally after so many years right. of them being in the shadows. And, mm-hmm. you know, until we see the results of that, I'm reluctant to say that we have put any of this behind us. Right, until they get either dismantled or exposed. Presumably. Yeah, you look at every pillar of complicity that I reported on over the fall, and a lot of those are still thriving, whether it's corruption in the justice system or complicity in the media. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be a lot more to say about all of those things. And what happens to Harvey Weinstein? You know, I get asked this question a lot, and forgive me if this is kind of an annoying answer because it's a dodge, but it's a sincere dodge and with with a good intention, which is, uh, you know, yes, there are ongoing proceedings, and I'm, you know, in contact with brave law enforcement officers who, you know, are very committed to not dropping the ball and the way the ball has been dropped in the past 
right. with respect to Harvey Weinstein. But I would just caution everyone that I think it's a misstep to become fixated on the taking down of men and the uh, specific men who were behind some of these crimes. This, for me, and I know that this is the sentiment of a lot of the survivors I, I talked to, was always about the survivors. This was about taking stories that hadn't been heard for so long mm -hmm. and putting a spotlight on them and making sure these brave women felt heard and seen. And I think the moment we start turning back to the spotlight being on Harvey Weinstein or any right. of these alleged predators, it detracts a little bit from the focus being the on... stories. Yeah, on the women and Do the you allegations. imagine there's a fatigue now of this? I don't think there is, but I think anger is a good thing. It, it's not really for, for me to say. You mean on the part of the, the culture? Culture, yeah. I hope that there is no fatigue for justice or accountability. Mm -hmm. I hope not. All right, let's answer some questions. That's a great question. Um, what, what would you ask Harvey Weinstein if you were interviewing? I've said this before. I would do a really fair interview with Harvey Weinstein. You know, we had um, obviously a lot of contact with mm -hmm. Weinstein and his team around mm -hmm. the publishing of these stories. Right. Um, you know, while I am sure he is not thrilled with uh, the ramifications of the stories. Mm -hmm. I think that he would be hard-pressed to find a moment at which we were in any way unfair to him. We gave him a very, very generous opportunity to comment again mm -hmm. and again and again and integrated you know, his viewpoint in uh, whatever way he felt was uh, important and appropriate. And uh, I would, you know, t doing an interview with him today, adopt exactly the same posture. I would be mm -hmm. very fair and meticulous. And if he felt that there was something important to say, um, I would interrogate those claims really carefully, right. but also you know, give them a fair airing. Well, that's really nice. I'd pop them in the nose. <laughs> 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 I met him once at a Google event, and he spit food at me. And all that. This, this, this is why we're a that good team, Kara. You're the, the brawn. No, She's I'd the like, muscle. I'd be like, I'd be like I'm going to get you. You're going to get later. I'm going to kill you. I, I love that. You disappear. I would. I just like it's enough. It's enough. <laughs> so Kara would there was murder someone I him. Was, uh, writing, there was someone I was writing about in tech, and they were like, when are you going to stop? And I said, when you stay down. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, but they didn't stay down. Um, they all stay rich, I can tell you that. Okay, how do, how do you produce on such a high level? I want to know that too, besides being a young man. What are your keys to success in this arena? Uh, what is their, your terrier-like mentality, obviously? Right, I'm very stubborn. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think any source who has been hounded by me um, will tell you I can be extremely annoying. I've heard that. <laughs> and persistent. Um, I also hope that I bring a certain level of compassion to these conversations. I certainly aspire to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were women who ultimately decided not to put their name on their mm -hmm. stories. Um, and that, of course, is always disappointing as a reporter, but I always respected mm -hmm. those wishes. And not every outlet that reported on this did that. You know, there, there were people who used names without permission. And, uh, you know, I'm not demonizing that. Every reporter makes different mm -hmm. calls. But I just felt, having seen my sister live through this and knowing what a personal experience it was, um, it was important to make sure that they had the opportunity to consent in every way and really control their destinies. Um, 
And I think giving sources that latitude is probably part what of... What about your own energy levels? I mean, you're... Uh, I don't sleep a lot. Okay. I really need to. Mm-hmm. I would probably be a lot more likable if I slept ever. <laughs> uh, I don't manage my time well at all. I mean, this last period was crazy. It's like you work a lot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was really like working on the Weinstein stories until 2 a.m. at One World Trade in New York and then going home and like typing until my fingers were bleeding and turning in a draft of War on Peace at like 10 a.m. and then collapsing for three hours and then going back to work. So I was just, you know, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, I was... Uh, you know, my poor partner, who you know, was like yeah. f- taking calls from me, and I'm you know falling apart constantly. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, they're coming after me, and they're trying to kill me, and I'm you know I have no job. And <laughs> he's like, yeah, 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 I, I got a life too. I can't yeah. do this all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, John, John, his partner's John Lovett. Um, pain in the ass, but I. Love uh, you know, and and I was really lucky to to also have a great support system in that respect. Yeah. My mom is wonderful. Yeah. And really instilled a really strong sense of public service. Thank you guys. I saw her. At She deserves that applause. And I would extend that to any strong single mom out there. I just learned so much watching her and, you know, admire her so much. I saw you at the time 100. She looked thrilled. Yeah, she's she's the sweetest. Yeah, Yeah. she's a fan of yours. Yeah, she's a pretty good movie star. She is Uh, a pretty good movie star. Yeah, I just saw Rosemary's Baby the other day. It was on TV. She's wonderful in it. She's good in that one. That was a good one. Yeah, Um, she was good in a lot of stuff. would you define the U.S. as a dying empire? What can we do to preserve the republic, or is it too late? Oh, well. Oh, that's, that's cheerful. Yeah. I do well, not we did think... have that civil war, and we managed to recover from it, so perhaps... We've but... recovered from a lot. Yes, I... we have. We have a terrible history. I uh, do not think that war on peace is a eulogy. Mm-hmm. I view it as actually quite optimistic in the end. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have bothered writing the thing if I didn't think there was a way out And the last section of the book is actually devoted to profiling how you can turn things around. And it uses some of those examples from the Obama administration Mm -hmm. where the first part of the book, um, you know, kind of lays waste (laughs) to the Obama administration and the ways in which it screwed this up and and the ways in which that is sort of a microcosm for the more Mm -hmm. extreme ills happening now. But the, the end is really about looking at the turnaround and the lessons we can derive from that. And I think that there is a roadmap to pulling out of the nosedive. And I think that, um, as I said, as much as there are fears about Mike Pompeo coming in, there's also a lot of hope. And there's yeah. a lot resting on his shoulders and the shoulders of the next administration that comes in. Then, okay, all right. Um, this is interesting. Who will or should succeed Mike Pompeo? He just got there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I want to. I want to assume that that's some like pretty high level humor. Yeah. He, you know, He's no one is safe for more than five minutes right. in this administration. Right. Uh, who should succeed Mike Pompeo? Not I mean, Scott Pruitt, obviously, but not Scott Pruitt. I. I, I mean, I would say. Come on. Come on. There were two... Sorry. (laughs) Some Scott Pruitt fans here. I guess. Uh, You know, I talk about how the White House was leaking these rumors about Tillerson's firing, and there were always two names that were leaked as potential successors, Mm -hmm. one of which was Pompeo and the other of which was Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, right. So if Mike Pompeo gets fired in the next five minutes, uh, I I don't know if it's Nikki Haley or she would want to do that. She says she wouldn't, but... Oh, Something to think about. Um, so they, um, she was. This is why we need Kara Swisher to run for office. <laughs> okay. By the way, bring honesty. No, bring Swisher you. back. Thank you. 
Thank you, politics. campaign manager. Um, we have some very great mayoral candidates in San Francisco coming. But she's Nikki thinking Haley. about it. You can tell Nikki, she's thinking about it. <laughs> I'm thinking now about a bigger office. Um, so uh, Nikki Haley, she had a back and forth over the Russia things. Where, what is her status now? She, she has a lot of back and forth with this administration now. Right. And, you know, uh, without betraying any confidences, uh, I will tell you, most reporters who have dealt with her team would tell you that one of the first things uh, that they stress is her independence from this administration. Right. And I think that, you know, she has a political future ahead of her in a yeah. way not all of these administration officials do. And she is being pretty savvy about trying to preser- preserve that. Yeah, it's interesting. She, she literally has, I will be running for president soon, all over her, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, look, this is an administration that has so stripped back our expertise and our culture of expertise that Mm -hmm. anyone who's just not insane feels like an oasis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with you. All right, last question. Uh, We have two more minutes. Um, And I have one last question. If uh, Susan Rice had been confirmed as Secretary of State instead of John Kerry, how would the American diplomacy have differed uh, in Obama's second term. They're both on the record in this book. Um, uh, They're both people who kind of hew, I think, close to a certain establishment model of Mm -hmm. leadership and values in the Democratic Party, and I don't know that it would have been that different. I mean, John Kerry was probably uniquely ambitious in terms of wanting that job and wanting that yeah. legacy in that job and he's right. going to take a break from windsurfing if he has to. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I joke about that, but honestly, he was... I, I usually don't give these kinds of blunt mm-hmm. uh, assessments mm-hmm. of leadership, good or bad, in this mm-hmm. job. I think there's a really good argument that he was a spectacular Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, he had to be. And I've seen him be, you know, a blowhard and all these things. He gave really thoughtful, insightful answers to tough questions in this, and I mm-hmm. string him up for, you know, not being hard enough on various human rights things. There's all sorts of tough things about John Kerry in this book. I don't know the guy that well. I saw him in action when he was, you know, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and mm-hmm. I was working on AFPAC stuff, and he was already trying was to cultivate... He the key senator in all this. It was John McCain for what was... Who was the- uh, it, it depends on in what respect you mean. I mean, Kerry was a, was a key senator um, right now. in a lot of the conflicts that I profile when, when he was in that role. Uh, he uh, is, is there a senator right now? There was, I talk about Patrick Leahy a lot mm-hmm. as someone who tried to introduce a layer of accountability to those military-to-military mm-hmm. relationships. The Leahy law is the one thing that Anyone prevents right us from Anyone right now in the Republican? Giving... Among, it was Corker, I guess, for... Uh, you know, I mean, Lindsey Graham has done some shuttle diplomacy mm-hmm. in a pretty high profile way. He shows up in a couple of the anecdotes here. And last question for me. Who, who's your favorite Secretary of State? Not Tia Leone, please. <laughs> of all the ones you interviewed. So that, that was going to be my next joke. Yeah, no, can't do that. Uh, you know, I was profoundly moved by Colin Powell's contribution to this book. Mm-hmm. And I know people... Uh, you know, not incorrectly uh, criticize him and call him to task for his involvement in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But what he evinces in terms of sincere commitment to the workforce of American diplomacy and his raw emotional devastation at what he describes as an administration tearing the guts out of diplomacy, Mm -hmm. mortgaging your future, he says... um, was a level of candor that he didn't need to go to. Right. And reflects 
uh, a really sincere kind of leadership that I wish we had more of. Mm -hmm. And you know, you talk to a guy like Colin Powell in the midst of all of the tawdry and awful stories about present day politics, mm -hmm. and you see a kind of decorum from yeah, classy guy. a very different era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really breaks my heart. Yeah. What are you working on next? Jesus <laughs> Christ, I can't wait. She says, what looking at me with the eyes of a no, hawk. Seriously, what you, enough of this. You did this, okay. Harvey Weinstein, War and Diplomacy, what's next? I uh, am hard at work at my next New Yorker story. Okay. Uh, I am starting my HBO deal, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I had to make the complicated decision whether to go back to the morning TV, you know, reading spaghetti recipes with Matt Lauer in the Please plaza no. type thing. No, 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 no Matt Lauer is gone. He's, he, he, I would not have been going. I would not have been going back to him, but no. you know, the equivalent he, he somewhere gone. else. And I, and I decided in the end that you know, as much as I like anyone else is vulnerable to the shiny thing of a lot of airtime, um, one of the lessons of this series of stories is if you go really deep and work your ass off for a long time to get it right, mm -hmm. um, people respond to that and it resonates in a really special way. So the HBO deal is kind of a cool one-off. It's a in new that, show. It's a, a yeah, I mean, honestly, they are letting me shape it to whatever degree of frequency I want. I think that trying to heed that lesson, I will likely do less frequent, very, very in-depth you know, documentary miniseries mm -hmm. um, around hopefully the biggest stories in America. Yeah. And that will be you know, shared with the reporting that I'm already doing in print and along the same lines about abuses of power and cover-ups. And um, I was heartbroken that I didn't get the chance to tell those stories visually. If you look mm -hmm. at the progression of the investigations I was doing on television, you can see the direction that was going in, and right. I'm excited that I have the chance to tackle that. Well, you're a pretty decent reporter from what I can understand here. <laughs> so, so are you, Kara. Yeah, so I, I appreciate hearing that. You've surpassed me already. Um, uh, but thank you Not so Not in terms of sass. Sass, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, just like Russ Turleson, I could give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. Isn't she great? Thanks, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Wired Magazine says HBO's Silicon Valley captures all the dick moves and dick jokes. I would agree with that, and I enjoy them quite a bit. It happens to be eerily timely as startup founder Richard Hendricks pivots this season to launch a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. It turns out that the road to an autonomous peer-to-peer -peer network, whatever that means, is paved with misguided car purchases, stealth acquisitions of Pizza App, and a lot of public puking, as well as an ICO. No one said launching a startup was easy. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart.